We have the pleasure of uh, talking today with uh, George Soleas. George Soleas, he is the president and CEO of uh, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Soleas, for taking the time talking to us. So you're very, very busy. Uh, and uh, I would like to ask you and introduce uh, to our audience, what, what is the Liquor Board, uh, Control Board of Ontario? Uh, uh, first of all, thank you, uh, Samadis, for uh, inviting me to your show. Uh, it's my pleasure to be with you and your audience. Uh, the, uh, so I live in Canada. I live in uh, Ontario, in uh, Toronto, Ontario. Ontario is a province uh, in Canada, and uh, I'm sure that um, many people know that um, Canada is divided into 10 provinces and three territories. So each uh, province, uh, is responsible for the sale and the retail of alcohol uh, in the specific uh, province. So in the province of Ontario, we have what is called the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, or in short, the LCBO. It is the largest liquor buyer and liquor distribution in the world. Uh, we do about uh, $7.2, $7.3 billion in sales. Um, and um, we buy from the entire world. We buy from 84 different countries. We retail anything that is alcoholic in Ontario. Uh, and uh, the $2.5 billion net profit, uh, we uh, transfer back to the taxpayers of Ontario, which is used for um, uh, funding education, uh, infrastructure projects, um, you know, the healthcare and so on and so forth. So in a nutshell, this is who we are. Every province has its own legal jurisdiction, but the LCBO is the largest legal jurisdiction in Canada. And just to give us, you, you mentioned the sales, uh, the revenue side. Uh, how many people work for you? So we have uh, 11,000 employees, uh, of which 8,000 are retail employees. It's a very large organization, uh, really a best-in-class organization. We retail through 675 of our own stores, and we wholesale to another 2,000 uh, retail stores uh, in Ontario. Uh, up until a few years ago, we were sort of the only game in town. We were a monopoly. Today, uh, the LCBO is competing with uh, a number of uh, grocers and uh, convenience stores, as well as restaurants who are retailing alcoholic beverages. Um, so the market is changing uh, in Ontario, and uh, the LCBO is changing with it. Now, how did you end up there? I, I, I'm assuming when you were in, in, in high school... Uh... Uh, when they, the teacher asked you what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up, you didn't say I want to run the largest liquor store in the world. No, I I, I wouldn't have even dreamed of uh, doing that. Uh, you know, I it, you know people ask me, can you tell us how what his career was like? And I can tell you it was anything but a straight line. Um, so I was I was born in Cyprus. Uh, obviously, I'm I'm Greek. Uh, and I became a refugee in 1974 when uh, Turkey invaded uh, Cyprus. So my my house, uh, my parents' house, uh, is occupied by the Turks, uh, and um, we were forced to leave. Uh, it became 
immigrants. Uh, you know, you either had to leave or you can you can be killed or raped or taken as a prisoner by the Turks, as you, I'm sure, uh, you're probably much younger than I. But uh, those days, uh, um, you know, we it, it was it was a very very difficult situation. So I had just graduated from a hotel and catering institute as a chef. Uh, and I was just training. I was 16 at the time. Uh, but when the war uh, happened, uh, my parents decided to immigrate to Canada. So uh, we came to Canada with basically just um, uh, a suitcase, each one of us. And I can tell you, in that suitcase, I had all the stuff that I picked up at the refugee warehouse. And all that stuff came from Canada. So in a way, I sort of brought back to Toronto what the Torontonians sent to Cyprus to help us with the refugee issue. Uh, so when I got here, I basically worked. I went to high school for a couple of years. Uh, and then I enrolled uh, at uh, McMaster University here in Hamilton, where I studied uh, biochemistry. Uh, and then a few years later, I took a job with a very large winery uh, here in Ontario. Again, my intention was not to get into the wine business. I knew nothing about the wine business other than I liked drinking wine. Uh, so when I joined uh, this organization, uh, they decided to send me to UC Davis in California to study enology, enologia, which is the study of wine. Uh, and I continued working uh, with uh, the winery. I became very interested in this business. Uh, I became very passionate about what I was doing. Uh, and then I enrolled uh, at the University of Toronto uh, and did my my master's and my PhD in clinical biochemistry. But again, I studied the effects of alcohol all the way. So I looked at the beneficial as well as the detrimental effects of alcohol to humans. So my career really, the last, uh, I would say, 40 years, has been in the alcohol beverage business. And again, just to answer your question, I've never dreamed of being in this business. I've never had interest in this business. But it really became a passion of mine when I joined the winery and uh, I realized that, uh, uh, A, uh, it is a great industry to be in. B, there are really wonderful people that work in this industry. And, and although you are competing with each other, uh, there is such a camaraderie between people that uh, it's almost like everybody's working together. So um, as was I finished there, uh, my... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, was there any anybody in particular that uh, comes to mind that uh, kind of uh, was a mentor or helped you uh, get where you are? Yeah, you know, when I joined uh, this uh, very large winery, the owner of the winery happened to be a medical doctor. He was an endocrinologist. And uh, this was sort of a family business, so he took me under his wing. Uh, he realized that I was ambitious, that I was hardworking, that I was honest, and I was very passionate about what I was doing. And he definitely helped me and coached me and mentored me uh, for the 11 years that I was with uh, the winery before I joined the LCBO in 1997. So I have to tell you that, um, that uh, Dr. Uh, Peller, uh, Joe Peller was an amazing human being, a very kind person, but also someone that that was a, a great mentor, um, who not only 
gave me the opportunity to study and funded my studying, but he also provided coaching uh, along the way. Now, so the, the, all, the per- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the, the perception is that the wine business, and probably that has changed over the, the last 20 years, but the perception has always been that the wine business is a little bit family. It's not about... Uh, the dollars it's about a passion that goes from the grandson to the grandfather owning the land dealing with the elements and creating with patience and persistence a product that every year is a little bit different is that a, 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 a romanticized way of looking at the industry or is it kind of true yeah. you know what i think that's the way it was in fact uh, for sure, that's the way it was. If you look at some of the biggest wineries we have today, that's how they started. Uh, they started with uh, either someone who loved wine, had a passion for wine, uh, or inherited some land, a vineyard or a winery, and they expanded and built on it. And some of these uh, families today have the largest wineries in the world. I mean, if you look at the Gallo Winery, that's how it started. If you look at Constellation, that's how it started. If you look at many of the the uh, chateaus in Bordeaux and in Burgundy, uh, even here in Ontario and in California, where I spend quite a bit of time, a lot of the wineries started this way. It starts with, with uh, a passion. Uh, and I always say that if you don't have the passion for what you're doing, get out of that business, you're not going to do well. Uh, and then the subsequent generations are built on it or a larger company buys the winery and it becomes part of a a, um, a very large organization. Uh, but you're right. I mean, you know, there there, there is there is a, there is a lot of passion in the business of wine. I I always say to people that this is really passion business, uh, Stamatis, because this is a product that that you put a lot of thought when you're going to buy a bottle of wine. Uh, then you you uh, you study, you buy the wine, you put it away for years, and then you open it up, and you don't just consume it by yourself like a bottle of beer. You actually sit down with your friends, you share it, you talk about it, you describe the wine, and you enjoy it. And it's something that you actually put in your body. This is not something that is not a bicycle. It's not something that is external to your body. You actually put it inside your body. So it is it is something that in my opinion requires a lot of passion. Yeah. So let me ask you about where we are today. Uh we are almost to the end of the pand- pandemic. I mean the uh, the game is not over, but at least we can, right. uh, we, we at least we we have a vaccine and things are looking better. I, I am very interested in hearing from uh, from you a person who uh, is responsible really for 11,000 people, and I, I have to assume the ecosystem behind it. It must be in the hundreds of thousands of producers and uh, all the logistics. So, if you can tell us uh, from a professional and a, and also on a personal point of view, uh, a year ago when you start hearing about the pandemic and when things starting shutting down and the retail shutdowns, uh, how it if you can give us a step-by-step of your thought process, your fears, your anxiety, and the solutions. Yeah. yeah. 
You know what? You're absolutely right, um, uh, uh, uh I We may employ 11,000 uh, employees, but the effect, uh, if we were to shut down our business, would have been, the side effect would have been in the tens of thousands of others, including our suppliers, other wineries, other distilleries, other breweries, cideries, all of the agent community that, that supplies us all of the manufacturers who supply these people. So we're talking about not just 10, maybe hundreds of thousands of people and uh, an incredible amount of, of, uh, of uh, revenue. So uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, you, you can, uh, look, you can plan for a pandemic and you can have the best business continuity plans, uh, but there is no blueprint, uh, there is no playbook for something of this size or uh, this, the scale or the impact and there is definitely no historic parallel where you can look back. So uh, it, it was, it was um, uh, as, a, as a large organization, one of the things that I, I do with my, my first team is to ensure that I have an enterprise risk management strategy. Uh, and one of the things in that enterprise risk management is actually a disruption due to an epidemic or a pandemic. So when the whole world started discussing this virus, which started actually in December, you know, remember by January 10th, uh, we actually we were able to genetically decode uh, this virus's DNA, uh, and and uh, you know, in fact, certain manufacturers of vaccines they started the the uh, vaccine manufacturing in January. Uh, I I uh, activated what I call the pandemic preparedness project team for the organization. And by the first week of February, uh, we had a cross-divisional team that basically started looking at all possibilities, including developing through analysis options of how can we deal with this pandemic and what do we need to do? Do we need to place uh, an order for uh, inventory? And we, in fact, placed an order for $70 million worth of inventory because during a pandemic, the supply chain is one of the the uh, the areas that is disrupted very badly. Uh, how do we deal with people? How do we bring people to work? How do we protect our people? You know, the most important capital of any organization is your human capital. It's your people. Did Without you, your people, uh, you're nothing, right? Tell us, because we're not familiar with what happened in Toronto. Did you have to close the retail stores? Did you have to shut down? Did you? What, what was the... Uh, the effect there. Yeah, so uh, you know, as as you know, uh, similarly to the U.S., uh, the uh, pandemic uh, became very evident sometime in the middle of March. Uh, so the owner of the organization, which is the government of Ontario, the premier of Ontario, and the minister of finance, called me and uh, told me that we're going to have to shut you down, just like we're shutting everybody else down. The only people that are going to stay open or the only, the only business that are going to stay open is essential business, which is the grocers, the pharmacy stores, and anyone who's selling anything that it is absolutely necessary for people. So I, I, tell you, I, I have to tell you that alcohol was very necessary at some point. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right, Stamatis, because... Um, you know, when I when I uh, when I spoke to the premier and I explained to the premier that we've done the analysis and we have a number of options that I was prepared to present to them, 
um, the, uh, I, I was very convincing to the premier and we were allowed to stay open. So for the entire pandemic, we did not, we only closed every Monday of every week and we remained open the rest of the time. So basically we remain open six days a week and we were able to service people very, very uh, safely and carefully. But the most important thing that we did was to talk to our people. Uh, I felt that it was incredibly important that our people, our employees, A, they felt safe, they trusted us, and that we provided very crisp uh, and very consistent communication to them. So it is incredibly important to be authentic with your communications and to make sure that they know we're all in this together and that you are walking the talk. The anecdotal evidence is that uh, liquor sales were increased all over the world. Is that, is that true? It is true. Um, our sales are up significantly from last year and definitely significantly over our plan. Uh, but there are a number of reasons why. Everybody, everybody thinks that people have, are over-consuming alcohol. In my opinion, there is some of that but it's not as big as everybody thinks it is. One of the reasons why our sales increased uh, is people were not allowed to travel. Remember, as of uh, the end of March, uh, travel was shut down. Our border between the U.S. and Canada was shut down. So people had to stay in the province. In fact, in some cases, they couldn't even travel to another province. So a lot of these people, they did their alcohol consumption here. It's what we call staycation. They stay home or they went to their cottage and they bought their alcohol and they consumed it here. So the alcohol they consume when they go to Miami or Tampa or in Tuscany or in Greece was actually consumed in-house in the province. So that obviously had a huge lift in our sales. The other thing that we saw was that because restaurants closed, uh, people were spending a little bit more for what they were buying, simply because they were not paying the restaurant prices. As you know, when you go to a restaurant, buy a bottle of wine for $100, that bottle of wine at the LCBO is only $30. So the customers were able to buy a little bit more of an expensive wine, and sometimes they bought two bottles instead of one. Yeah. The other thing that we saw saw is that uh, uh, customers came into the store they didn't come as frequently, but they bought the basket was much bigger. Much bigger. And they Makes bought sense. the larger format products. Instead of buying the 750 ml whiskey or wine, yeah. they would buy the liter and a half or maybe, maybe a bag in a box, four liters, and they would come back, but not as frequently. So the basket was much bigger. The traffic went down, but over the last 11 months or so since the pandemic started, we saw a significant increase in our sales, which is, which is good news for the taxpayers of Ontario because the yeah. money that we generate, we, we transfer to the province of Ontario $50 million a week, yes. which is money want, that is yeah. going to pay for the vaccines, for the PPE, for the nurses, the doctors, and so on and so forth. Now, I, I want to get your... Uh... Uh, perspective. Uh, you mentioned you talked to the Premier and the Minister of Finance. Uh, you, your organization is owned by the government. You, obviously, a business leader, 
that is very much uh, in, in the you know in the circle you have the ear of the politician so to speak they they're, they're talking to you they, they listen to you 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 were able to convince them uh, to stay open i want to uh, hear from you do you think about the government response uh, and let's talk first uh, about canada how you felt that the canadian government uh, dealt with it and then I, i'm very much interested hearing again from your uh, business and the responsibility point of view, what do you think the the world dealt with it? Look, I think that they 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 obviously found themselves in a very very difficult situation. Uh, as I said to you before, uh, you you can plan for a pandemic, but you don't know what's going to happen the next day. In fact, it was a very disruptive time, uh, a lot of unknowns, a lot of change. Uh, and a lot of guessing in some cases. But you know what? And again, this was a very dynamic situation. It really tested the efficiency and the resilience of all structures. It, and it, it, it exposed a lot of shortcomings. Uh, for, you know, whether it's a government or organization, it, it really did expose a lot of shortcomings. And it, it created an environment with, with uncertainties that were largely unprecedented. So you can see why, uh, you know, politicians didn't have a playbook where they would just open it up on page five and they know exactly what to do. But I must say, though, so they've done everything they can, but I must say that, in my opinion, and I'm not, I'm not critical of my own politicians here. I'm just, I'm just critical of, of, of the, 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 the global situation that we were in. Uh, I believe that this pandemic could have been dealt way more efficiently and effectively if, in fact, politicians around the world talk to each other. And unfortunately, up until recently, that was not the case. So, and that got us to where we are today. Uh, but I can tell you, my politicians here in Ontario worked very closely with us. Uh, and I worked very closely with them to make sure that we protect the people that we put in the stores and, and how we do things. But again, we didn't always get it right. Uh, it was very difficult to predict where the virus was going to go next. We didn't have the right tests. We didn't have the vaccine up until recently. Um, could the politicians have done a better job in preparing uh, for this? Yes. Uh, absolutely. Uh, could they have uh, um, prepared for, um, you know, the uh, certain manufacturing facilities uh, to immediately start manufacturing, uh, you know, ventilators and uh, masks uh, and test kits? Yes, I think we dropped the ball there as well. I think it was the response was too slow. Uh, there was uh, a lot of. Um, uh, dysfunctionality between the scientific community and the politicians. Uh, not a lot of alignment at the beginning until we realized that, that uh, this was getting worse and worse. Uh, and we've lost a lot of valuable time at the beginning. So, as you said, we are moving in the right direction right now. Uh, the vaccines are becoming more and more available. Uh, we've, we know now how to deal with, with uh, this virus, uh, you know, much better than we knew uh, last March. And um, I agree with you. I believe that we are 
And we're, I believe that we're close to the other side of this pandemic. But we've learned a lot from this. I, I hope we have, because there's going to be another one of these situations, probably another virus which is going to be nastier than this one. So I hope uh, a lot of the learnings uh, that we, we got from this pandemic, which is really the silver lining, will be put into effect to ensure that we have a, a better approach in how to deal with these types of situations uh, in the future. And you know what? We could have another one of these in two, three years or in 10 years. I just hope that we've learned a lot and uh, that uh, we will have some kind of a playbook or a blueprint for the next one. On a personal point of view, what was uh, something that you learned and, and how did you cope personally? Well, again, um, I was incredibly busy, and, and uh, that was probably the saving grace because uh, uh, staying busy is, a, is, is good for your soul and it's good for your mind. Um, I uh, immediately activated, as I said, our pandemic preparedness project team, and the core team, the first team of the organization, was meeting twice a day for the first six weeks of the pandemic. Uh, and, and good conversation, good communication is really the key to everything you do. So I said before that one of the things that we really needed to do was to make sure that our people trust that we care about them and that we have authentic messages, uh, very crisp and very consistent messages to people and that we, we told the truth, that if we didn't know something, we should say that we don't know. Uh, if, if we expect um, disruption or change, we should make sure people know that. But we should always ensure that, that um, these messages are authentic because if your people, if you lose the trust of your people, I think you've lost the game. And that was incredibly important for me, is to make sure that, that uh, I led the organization by setting the example by being out there, visiting stores, visiting the warehouses, uh, talking to people, and ensuring that they know that we're all in this together and that we will get through it together. So if your people know that you care about them, they will do everything they can to help you. And by ensuring that our people felt safe, it also made the customers feel safe to come into the stores. Now, we've done a lot for the employees. We gave them compassionate leave if they couldn't come to work. We told them that if, they want, if, they're, if, they, if they're afraid to come to work, stay home until you feel comfortable. So you need to show compassion during these types. It's very difficult times. They're very difficult times. We also provided mental health wellness uh, assistance um, to people. We, we teamed up with the Addiction Research Foundation what we call the CAMH here, and we worked with them to develop uh, uh, um, a center where our people can go and get help if they needed help. And what I've done with every one of my direct reports and their direct reports, which are the ambassadors of the organization, is to make sure that they touch base with every one of their people on a regular basis, to make sure that they know that we care, to make sure that they know we're here for them, uh, and that we are ready to provide whatever help they needed. A, because we're all human beings and we care about each other, and we just wanted to make sure that uh, they were able to come 
and, and, and do the work that they needed to do. Well, Mr. Soleas, uh, you know, from a, from a refugee kid uh, to come to this uh, position where you have helped uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people, uh, it's remarkable, and I think uh, you should be congratulated. Uh, my last question to you is, uh, what advice would you give to a younger self um, and as a, obviously, as a, as a result to the young people that are listening. Yeah. You, you know, um, uh, Samadhi, um, my story, it's really not unique. Um, there were 200,000 refugees from Cyprus, but there are millions of immigrants and refugees from other countries of the world that either come to the United States or they come to Canada or they go to Australia. And it's really wonderful that these countries give us the opportunity to enter these countries, to live in these countries. And I can tell you, I know a lot of people like myself who have done amazingly well because of that assistance that someone provided at the beginning allowing you to come to this country, uh, maybe, you know, putting you through uh, English as a second language when you enter the country. Those are really the first steps. And what I would say to, uh, to uh, younger people is um, don't ignore that first step that someone gives you. Uh, appreciate it. Use it. Because the first step will get you to many, many other steps. Um, it's it's important and never ever forget those who helped you and always have a mentor or mentors and I've always and to me a mentor is not someone who's older than you. a mentor is someone that you trust who has uh, the same code of ethics as you do who's honest with you who's not telling you what you want to hear but rather who's telling you who's giving you the unvarnished truth uh, but who's also there because he or she cares about your success. And of course, always be honest, always have good ethics. And if you're not prepared to work hard, you're not going to get to where you need to go. So be very resilient uh, and focus and be passionate about what you're looking for. Because without passion, you may do things okay, but you're not going to be successful. So this is what I tell my kids. I've got two kids, a boy and a girl, and they're doing well. And I've always said to them that if you don't have passion for what you do, get out of it and find something that you're passionate about. It doesn't matter what it is, because if you're passionate, you will be successful. Mr. Uh, Soleas, Mr. George Soleas, he's the president and CEO of the Liquor Control Board of Ontario the largest uh, liquor store in the world, I would say. Uh, it was really an honor and a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for your time. Damani, thank you for uh, including me in your uh, session today, and uh, wish you all the best. Uh, stay safe, and I hope soon uh, we will go back to uh, some uh, normality, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to travel back to Greece. Yes. Thank you again. <laughs> You're welcome. Bye-bye.